<clears throat> All right. Here we go. We're going to be in verse 9 through 14. <clears throat> it says this. And he also told them this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. Oh God, <clears throat> I thank you that I'm not like other people. Oh, greedy and unrighteous. Oh, adulterers. Oh, or even like ugh, this tax collector here. <clears throat> I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this one went home, went down to his house justified rather than the other. Because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Lord Jesus, we pray for your guidance here this morning as we navigate this passage. We pray your Holy Spirit to open up our hearts and our minds to receive what you have for us here this morning. And Lord, give us feet to put feet to this passage, to put action to this passage in our own lives and in the life that you have called us to live. Lord, anoint us with your spirits to receive what you would have for us, your church, here this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. <clears throat> so you may have seen the movie uh, True Grit, and I, when I was making the sermon this morning, I came up with the, the topic was true grace. I was like, oh, I should put like a cowboy background on that. And I should you know, put bleeding cowboys as the font. So kind of a Western theme this morning. You know, if you're, you know like Josh and, and Amberlynn, you guys, you country folk might appreciate this. <laughs> so, well, so I love e checking my email on Sunday mornings because sometimes it gives me inspiration like this morning. So if you go to our Facebook page, there's, an, there's a link to this article that I'm about to share. And so did you know, this is super cool, according to a stem cell microbiologist, you can change your DNA. Did you know that? Who wants to? I didn't know that. You can change your DNA. But here's the thing. So here's the, 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 the main basis of this article is basically saying that the common idea that DNA determines so much of who we are, not only like our eye color and hair color, for example, but also what? Our addictions. People have blamed their DNA. It's all it's in my DNA. I'm just an addict, right? So I'm in my, in my chromosomes. You know, disorders this, or susceptibility to cancer. He said, this is a misconception. This is, his name is uh, Bruce Lipton. He's a PhD. He said, you find yourself to be more or less a victim of your heredity. Of your her uh, yeah, heredity. Um, he said in a documentary, the problem with that belief system is that it extends to another level. You become irresponsible. You say, oh, I can't do anything about it, so why even try? This concept says you are less powerful than your genes. Blame it on my biology. Well, I'm, I am this, I am that, because my DNA. 
I struggle with this because oh, it's just my, it's just my cell. It's just my, just my brain, my brain, my, just my how my body works. To explain how this works, he stated at at the level. Uh, wait, sorry, he said a person's perception, not genetic programming, is what spurs all action in the body. It's actually our beliefs that select our genes, that select our behavior. Wow. And so he goes into this, all these different things. He's talking about these five different things. You know, like the, the cell is like, is like a human body and it functions without the DNA. He actually experimented with taking a cell because you can actually extract the DNA from it and it worked fine by itself. You know, it did the whole, you know, fighting off toxins and doing different things and interacting with other cells, right? And then you put it back in and it actually obeyed the cell. The DNA shifted and changed and adapted to the cell and its exterior motives, not the interior. And this is, this is like mind-boggling to science because they've always assumed it's the other direction, that the DNA was the driving force, was the brain cell of, of the cell, right? And so he's saying that the, human, the, the cell is like a human body and functions without it. DNA is controlled by the environment. Uh, perception of the environment is not necessarily the reality of the environment. Number four, human beliefs, choosing to perceive a positive or negative environment is what, cha- is what changes it. Uh, number five, it also, um, it also directs your fight or flight and can be changed and can be adapted, right? When it, you, know, you can change your thinking, you can change your biology then at that point too. So it was super cool. So there's a whole lot to this article, but I'm not going to share too much about it. But the article is on, on uh, the Facebook page on, the, on Shift Church. You can go on there and, and grab the link and check it out. Uh, super fascinating article to read. Um, but basically, the, to, the, what drives our decision-making processes? What, what shifts the way that we interact with our world? What guides and directs our heart, our emotions? If we can change our very biology by having right beliefs, would we not engage more with changing those beliefs? so that we can change our biology. Like I, said, I love the, the, the point of that last part. That it can actually change your gut reactions. Like the things that your, your brain doesn't really control. Like it, you know, they talk about it in the military, trust your training. Just lean on your training. Let your brain, they, they, they train you hard, hard and hard, right? So that, you know, like it reminds me of Karate Kid. Anyone seen the Karate Kid? Right, yeah, yeah. Wax on, wax off. Just how I remember the, the moon. And, you know, because it waxes on, so the light comes in from the right and then wanes to the left. So if you see the light of the moon on the right, the light's coming. If you see the light on the left side of the moon, it's going away. Little tidbit there. But so, <laughs> but he's waxed on, waxed off. And the guy's like, what are you doing? I came here to learn karate. You'll keep doing this. You know, like going over, you know, wax on, wax off. So waxes his entire car, wax on, wax off. Like, oh, come on. And so he like, all right, put him down. And he like goes to punch him. And the kid, the kid just like knee-jerk reaction goes and blocks it and, and blocks it the other way. He, his body responded because his mind changed his physical ability to react. Right. He changed his biology. That's exactly what Miyagi was doing. That's what we're talking about here. You had a knee-jerk reaction. What is your fight or flight in the moment? How do you respond or react to situations, good or bad? 
Do you respond with joy? Do you respond with skepticism? Do you respond with freedom or do you respond with fear and, and, and stoicism? Do you respond to a situation and just anger immediately? Do you respond, do you react with listening, with calm? You can change that. And so in this situation, this guy's reaction, this guy's, this guy's way of thinking here is, oh, thank God I'm not like those idiots. That's his knee-jerk reaction because that's the way he was programmed. That's the way he was trained. That's the way he has trained his biology to react to holiness. Right, And so this morning, we want to look at this point. This is our main point. True grace, what does it do? It compels us to lift up, not put down. True grace, true grace, not true grit. True grace compels us to lift up, not to put down. So the point of Jesus' parable this morning, because remember, this is a parable. This, is not, this, this dude didn't actually exist. Or did he? Because remember, who are these guys praying to? They're praying to God. And who is Jesus? God. You know, so I kind of wonder if like, you know, Jesus is like, I heard your prayer before I was born. I know what you're praying, you know. And so he's like using this illustration of someone else's, some other Pharisee, like 200 years before he was even born as an illustration. So maybe these parables were sort of parables based on, true, based on a true story. Only the names have been changed to protect, to protect the guilty. Uh, <clears throat> So the point of Jesus' parable is found right there in that first verse. He does all the work for us. So this is going to be a very short sermon. Here it is. He told this parable to some, again, not all, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. So Jesus' point, stop it. Right. You don't act like that. All right, let's pray. Yeah. Jesus does all the interpretive work for us right there at the beginning. He tells us why he's giving us this parable, why he's translating it this way. And so who are we talking about in these passages? Um, Well, first, I mean, let's look at the context of where we're going at. So where have we been? So we talked about the whole great day of the Lord and the the final coming, you know, the coming judgment upon Israel. Because remember, the, the great day of the Lord in that context was the coming of the Romans in AD 70 to come and destroy the entire Jewish culture, entire Jewish culture, the entire Jewish heritage in Jerusalem. Gone. The temple flattened. They, what's the, what's the word, Amberlynn, when you chop something off a tree and it grows back? Thank you. The Romans coppiced all of the olive trees in, on the Mount of Olives to make their battering rams and all sorts of stuff. So basically, they, they chop them off at the base, right? But if you Google them, they're back. And they have grown over the last 2,000 years from those roots. So all those root, all those trees that are in the Garden of Gethsemane today were there when Jesus was praying in them. So those trees have heard the voice of God. How cool is that? That's really the cool. roots have heard the voice of God. But everything was destroyed. Everything was flattened. Jesus was coming to warn them and say, repent, change your minds. For the kingdom of God is here. Don't hold so tightly to this because guess what? It's going to lead to your destruction. So that's where the context has been 
from our passage here. And then coming into last week where it talks about praying fervently. That understanding puts us into a posture of, therefore, who should we go to for guidance? Go to God. Annoy him. (laughs) Like the persistent widow. Annoy him, bug him. But here's the thing, because, but he wants you to bug him. He wants you to talk to him. He wants you to seek him out in prayer. And now he's giving us another illustration of, of now let's recalibrate your heart when you do come to pray. Are you just being annoying to God? Like this Pharisee. Are you being annoying to God by saying, oh, thank you that I'm not like that Democrat over there. Thank you, God, that I'm not like that Republican. <laughs> Thank you, God, that I'm not like that dirty, rotten person next door. (laughs) These people are neighbors. I guess so are you guys. (laughs) Thank you, God, that you have not made me like fill in the blank of the person you never want to talk to. It's personal real quick, doesn't it? It sure does. Thank you, God. So it's, it's now Jesus is saying, okay, if you're going to pester God, make sure your prayers are going to be not annoying to him in that sense. We can annoy Jesus. <laughs> kind of like, you know, like our, our forefather, Luther, Martin Luther, who um, he, would, he had a radical transformation, a radical salvation experience. Actually, it seemed like he had several of them, actually. But... <laughs> There was a, the, he kept going to confessional. He, he was, you know, there was, he made the, the Protestant church so that he wanted to ratify and completely reform the Catholic church. But he would go to confession every day and like, just like dump all, like every little thought that he might perceive that could potentially have been a sin. Just oh, bleh, on, on the priest. And they're like, yeah, that's not actually a sin. That's not, that's, that's not a sin. You know, you drank two cups of coffee. Oh, no! He was like, that's not a sin. Like, he just was so wanting to, to, to pray into the heart of God. He felt so much guilt and shame. So we can either be the self-justifying type or we could be the shame-filled type. And either one, God is saying, I'm better. I'm better than your perception of me. So let's turn the dial and change your perception to get your mind calibrated in with, with, and to resonate with my heart, right? Um, it's kind of like my uncle. <clears throat> He's super musical. So musical, in fact, that if you sing a tune, he can sing it with you a hair off, like the next note, and it sounds terrible. But then you come into synchronization with it and it sounds beautiful. So sometimes in our life, we're so close, but not quite there. It's distorting our view of God. So we need to come into alignment with his heart. Come into alignment with his perception of us. So let's look more deeper into this passage. So who are we talking about? So verse 10 in this passage, um, two men went into the temple to pray. One who? A Pharisee. Let's look at that. What was his prayer? that I'm not like other people. This self-righteous, this is the context of the person who what? Trusted in themselves that they were righteous. 
So he's basically, so Jesus is saying that Pharisees believe in themselves. They trust in themselves. They are persuaded in themselves that they are righteous in themselves. And because it was based in themselves, they were able to what? To look down on others, to see others as insufficient for their righteousness, lesser than. And therefore, they were in a position to chastise you and your behavior, you lesser human being, in your struggles as this tax collector. And what does he say? I've, I put all my faith in what? My ability to fast twice a week. Well, I do that every week. I do it every day. <laughs> we, you know, there's, there are times where we can you know, lean into our works. And we feel justified for doing so. What else does he do? I give a tenth. I give a tithe. Looking at all the things he does, the works that he does, going to the temple and going to Shabbat and you know, doing Shabbat and, and not walking too far on Shabbat and not doing any work. He doesn't push the button on the elevator. He rides in the Shabbat elevator. That's a thing in Israel, by the way. They have elevators that stop on every floor so you don't even have to touch the button. Because that's what it's all about. God's like looking, are you going to push a button? I'm getting my, getting my smiter smitey. Darn, I was hoping to smite today. <laughs> right. And then you see, you know, he says, but. He didn't say that it was only the Pharisees. He said to some who trusted in themselves. He didn't say to the Pharisees who trusted in themselves, because who is his audience? It's also his disciples. So he was trying to train the church to not fall into the same trap. He's using a, a Pharisee to personify this because this was a, a mental picture that they could have in their, in their minds. But he was telling this to his disciples. Don't be like this. Don't be like the Pharisees. My kingdom is utterly different. My kingdom is not of this world, and including the, the Jewish world including the religious world. My kingdom is utterly different. And you're going to be looked at as weird. Be weird. It's okay to be weird. And I'm telling you to be weird and I'm showing you how to be weird. Here's how to be weird. You don't do that. You don't trust in yourself and look, on, look down on everyone else. It was the culture that had been created in this religious society, which I would say has been perpetuated here in America as well, in American Christendom, is this spirit of religion, this spirit of it's by what I do and my identity, my worth and my value is what I can do for God. If I can do enough good and not do bad, it's based upon our morality, not our identity. That is American evangelicalism in a nutshell. So let's look at someone that they perceive to be bad, our fill-in-the-blanks. Who, who was their blanks? But the tax collector. Think about this. The tax collector. Who is following Jesus at this point? Matthew. Who was a tax collector? Can you imagine sitting there and seeing Matthew, and maybe this is Jesus using Matthew's story. Maybe he was having a, a, you know, a time next to the campfire one time, and 
Matthew was sitting there and Jesus was like, hey, guess what, Matthew? I saw you. I saw you in the temple. I saw you praying, beating your chest and saying, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus looking at him straight in the eye and saying, I do. And the weight of receiving that, I almost see like Jesus kind of looking over at Matthew and giving him a wink. Matthew's eyes filling up with tears of joy. That he's experienced the mercy of God. And other tax collectors had followed him as well. Maybe that was their story. And whose story is coming up in a few weeks? Little guy. Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, a wee little man. And a wee little man. We'll get to that. That's the beginning of, of chapter 19, which we'll get to in a, in a couple weeks here. So this, this imagery of a tax collector, which of course, if you remember, tax collectors were not viewed at as in a positive light. They were people who worked for the Romans. They didn't work for the Jewish leaders. They weren't holy people. They were considered as, even to them, worse than Gentiles. They were considered as traitors to Israel in league with the Romans, so just as bad, but even worse because they've betrayed their, peop- their own people and their God. And we'll talk more about that here in a few weeks. But so this is the context of what we're talking about, the most despicable with the, with the most holy in their religious culture, right? And the juxtaposition between the heart mind, the heart set of both. Um, and so what is this imagery supposed to be telling us? What is it supposed to be showing us? What does Jesus want us to, to see and experience? Well, first, we have to consider our own conscience. We compare what? To self-justify. Yeah. So that our mind, we feel at this level of okayness, of acceptance, of I feel right. I'm living in a place where I feel right. I'm sailing. I'm, I'm, I'm on cruise control. I'm good, right? We self-justify so that our mind is satisfied. This is a worldly value. Trusting in ourselves that we are righteous. Self-justifying in our minds. How do we do this? How do, this is a, a puffing up, right? A puffing up of ourselves, of our own self-worth. A puffing up, how, what are ways that we do this in our lives and in Christendom? I mean, just think about in the world itself, not just in the church, but in the world itself. The number one thing, especially in, in American Western culture, not just American, but just Western culture, you know, America, Europe, etc., in the Enlightenment countries, right, is knowledge. We want to have the right knowledge using the right authorities, right? I'm quoting this person, like this morning, I just... I just did with the, with the microbiologist. This guy, he's a PhD. He's a, a stem cell microbiologist. He has a title and letters after his name, right? We want letters after our name. I've got Alan Feltz, MDiv, behind my name. Never used that. Hello, I'm, I'm uh, Alan Feltz, MDiv. Good to meet you. Yeah. <laughs> I have degrees. Look, I have the certificate. The irony of that statement. <laughs> I can't say it, right? God is showing me this this morning. 
these degrees, right, that say what? I have knowledge. I've studied. I know more than you. So you should bow before me. No, no, no. Right? But in people's minds, if I have more knowledge, I'm worth more and you should listen to me. I am the authority. My, or the person that I'm quoting has more authority than the guy that you're quoting. Right? We immediately go, it's interesting, like we go this, this, uh, this uh, what's called, um, not heresy, well, it's heresy, but in literature, um, um, fallacy, not heresy, fallacy. Uh, fallacy of attacking the person and the character of the person versus the argument. We, we try to attack that this person doesn't have degrees or doesn't have the right degrees. Or that this person did this one bad thing back when they were in high school and now their, their entire education is, is invalid, right? We try to go after the knowledge. We want to puff ourselves up with knowledge in our Western culture. Maybe in, 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 uh, in the church religious environment, going along with that is good works. Or breakthrough. I've been having all these great breakthroughs. I'm holier than you. Because I've been doing more of this, of this and that. And look at you. What are you doing? Have you been doing that? Have you not been doing that? I'm better than you and I want to make sure that you know it. Because look at all these things that I've done. God is working great miracles in my life. What are you doing wrong that he's not in yours? I mean, all these, these things that are good. Like we want breakthrough. We want, we want good to, to do good things. We want to grow in knowledge. We want to follow God with all of our hearts. Sometimes we can even put it into our skills, like how skilled, uh, good at, at something we are or not. I'm the best at this. I'm the best at that. Right? Arrogance, pride, deceives us of reality. You know, this is, this is, this is why, uh, guys, just a little hint. This is why we rev our engines. Right? Right? So that, <laughs> I've never seen this, this meme of like, you know, a guy doing that. And like, what guys think that girls are saying when they rev their engines are like, oh, he's so hot. Oh, I want him to be mine. Look how loud his engine is. Oh, or like other guys, like, oh, I'm so jealous of, of that guy's. Okay, I kind of was one time. Uh, <laughs> so our, our friend, you know, our, our, if you knew, if you knew uh, uh, Philip and Tabitha, so our friend Philip got, a, got an Aston Martin. And we like to kind of race each other. And it's funny because, you know, we, he, he likes to soup up his car, right? And, and I had my little mom mobile, he called it, the, my, our Ford Flex with a twin turbo EcoBoost, and smoked his car. I was like, Vroom. he was like, darn it. But then he got an Aston Martin and he smoked me. But as he went by, like, oh my gosh, that, that engine just sounded awesome. Like, Texan was like, that was amazing. <laughs> but we want, we, we want to, others to notice us. We want others to, to admire us. We want others to, oh, wow, that person. Oh, he's so hot. Right. This is why boys in youth group carry as many chairs as physically, humanly possible, right? Arms loaded with like 10 chairs. Yeah! Notice me, girls. So I did it. 
on both arms. This is why women gossip. This information is power to self-elevate. By talking about someone, I have power over them. That's too strong. It's the girls that carry the chair. Yeah. Right. Well, that's why they're surrounded by all these girls. They're like, I have I gotta carry as many as possible. But what is God, what is the, what is the kind of undertow? What is the, what is the underwriting in this passage here? What is he talking about? Humility. Humility, yeah. By having this humility. Humility is a definition based on lack, actually. A lack of pride. A lack of vanity. It is a dependence on something greater. It is saying that I am, I, I lack, I am empty of deceit. And I love this, this passage, uh, or this, uh, this writing um, by C.S. Lewis. There's a book called The Screwtape Letters. A little context, so these, these are demons talking. So when he talks about the enemy, that's God, right? And when he talks about their Lord, it's talking about Satan, talking about Lucifer. So your patient has become humble because they're basically they're, they're navigating how to tempt this human, right? And make this human sin, right? So that your patient has become humble. Have you drawn his attention to that fact? All virtues are less formidable to us once the man is aware that he has them. But this is especially true of humility. Catch him at the moment when he is really poor in spirit and smuggle into his mind the gratifying reflection. <laughs> By Jove, I'm humble. C.S. Lewis is English. I'm being humble. And almost immediately pride, pride at his own humility will appear. If he awakes to the danger and tries to smother this new form of pride, make him proud of his attempt, and so on, through as many stages as you please. But don't try this too long for fear you awake his sense of humor and proportion, in which case he will merely laugh at you and go to bed. But there are other profitable ways of fixing his attention on the virtue of humility. By this virtue, as by all the others, our enemy, that's God, God wants to turn the man's attention away from self to him and to the man's neighbors. All the abjection and self-hatred are designed in the, in the long run solely for this end, Unless they attain this end, they do us little harm. And they may even do us good if they keep the man concerned with himself. And above all, if self-contempt can be made the starting point for contempt of other selves, and thus for gloom, cynicism, and cruelty. So that's the way the enemy likes to work. Because it's trying to center it on self. By Jove, I'm being humble. Versus when we fix our eyes on the Lord, when we fix our eyes on God, it shifts the way that we operate and think. When we're being humble, it's not necessarily that we don't understand or, or are not cognizant of it, but we can then turn and give that honor and glory to God and maintain that humility. Because we are understanding that we are void of pride and vanity. But here's, here's a good question. Well, then he begs the question, well, 
how should the parable have gone? Well, here's how the parable should have gone. So two men going up to the temple, Pharisee, tax collector. A Pharisee goes up. Instead of being self-righteous and and looking down on others, what does he say? He expresses joy, gratitude toward God, singing of his love, singing of God's faithfulness, singing of God's mercy and acceptance. And then when he has fulfilled that, he looks down at the ta- and sees the tax collector, and he's like, there's an opportunity for the love of God to be made manifest. And he sees the guy beating his chest and saying, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the, and the Pharisee goes over to the tax collector, puts his arm around him, prays for him, invites him for lunch, pursues him for a friendship so that he can share God's goodness to him. He's a Pharisee. He has all the knowledge of the Bible. He's got, he's got the, you know, the intimate relationship with the word of God that he can share with this man, with this tax collector who probably doesn't. Sharing God's goodness to him to express the, that Israel and God have not given up on him. We don't see you as a traitor. We see you as someone that God wants to love and reconcile to himself so that he can share in God's goodness with him to show him the mercy of God as a brother. And they both walk, they both walk away justified, blessed, connected, restored, and changed for the better. That's how it should have gone. Like Jesus reminded us, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Not just like, you know, thought higher of, God's given them the, the divine attaboy, but exalted. His spirit will be raised up. It will be encouraged. He will be exhorted. He will be exalted in his spirit, in his soul. It'll be a, it'll, he'll leave blessed and go out and be a blessing. Exalted. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters. Anyone who defames or judges a fellow believer defames and judges the law. If you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Because the one who is the lawgiver and the judge, what did he do? What did he do? He proclaimed all those who believe in his name innocent. God placed all of the guilt on Jesus. So if he has declared that you are innocent, who's going to come before you and cast a judgment on you? Only God, and he has chosen not to. The only one would be Satan, the accuser, or the voice of Satan through others. Are you being a voice of Satan to others? Oh, thank you, God, that I'm not like that person. Versus, thank you for your deliverance, Lord, and help me to go and show that person your desire to deliver them. Right. Your heart of grace, your heart of joy for that person, that you sing joy over them. And so we need to realize how it, it could have gone, it should have gone, so that we can live our lives the way it should have gone. This is the point of the story. Jesus is, is using these two images, imageries to, show, to, to tell an untold story that we, are ought, that we ought to live in. 
How do we live our lives the way it should have gone? Like I said, this is Jesus' purpose. And this is Jesus' purpose for coming in the first place. To show it, and as he said, I am what? The way. The way to live. I am the truth. The true life. And I am the life. I am the way to true life. I am the way, truth, and the life. Live your life like this. This is why the very first name for us was followers of the way. Followers of the way that Jesus taught, the way in which he lived, the way in which he taught us to live. Humble, non-judgmental, encouraging, blessing, uplifting, no matter who they are. No matter who they are. No matter what they've done, no matter your opinion of them or their job or their political sphere or their age or their race, nationality, language, God has brought all of us to live the way of God. God created all things. That's why I love that word namas, the, you know, the, the, the law oftentimes translated. The law, you know, my law, as God says, I will write my law upon your hearts. That word in that one, namas, means my perception, my worldview, my opinion, my view, my lenses. Put my lenses on, and then you'll see that tax collector through the eyes of grace, not through the eyes of judgment. The church is meant, to be, is meant to carry the fulfilled way that the parables should have gone, right? With each other in the church and with others in the world. This is wisdom. This is, this is true wisdom. So you have knowledge, which is the knowledge of things, but then you have wisdom, which is you know what to do with that knowledge. So you have the knowledge of God and his grace and his mercy, and now wisdom is knowing what to do with that, where to bestow it, where to direct it, how to direct it, how to love, how to serve, how to lift up, how to bless one another in the church, others in our lives, our family, our friends, the general public. The way of Jesus is wisdom. The way of Jesus is love. And this is so beautifully articulated. And it's so funny, this passage is always, is always read at weddings, but this is actually squished in the, in the middle of two entire chapters inside an entire book that's all about the church, which is 1 Corinthians. So he says this, this is the context. This is uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Well, if I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions, and if I give over my body to, in order to boast but I do not have love, I gain nothing. Because love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It is not boastful. 
It is not arrogant. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not irritable and does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And then we see another image of this in Galatians. And I love how another translation actually translates this because in the original language, there's actually a different punctuation after the word love, right there. It's actually more, more, more commonly, or you know, uh, in the Greek language, actually more of an, in our English language, a semicolon. For the fruit of the Spirit is love. And everything that follows that, all the rest of the eight, are describing that love. So, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. And what does love look like? It is joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Or against such things, there is no law. Now, those who belong to Christ, have, Christ Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, aka pushing each other's buttons, envying one another. Because what does true, when we encounter the grace of God, when we encounter the love of God, true grace compels us to lift up and not put down. We have experienced, when when we have experienced judgment, condemnation, shame, and spiritual abuse, this is how we treat others. When we experience these things, we've, you know, many of us have experienced this ourselves. This spiritual abuse or this judgment and condemnation from others. This shame. Trying to get you to do right things by shaming you. By guilting you. This is, how, this is the way that we treat others. With grace. With love. This is the way the Pharisees experienced their faith in God. From the religious culture they were taught and brought up in these pharisees in essence were some sort of also sort of victims it's all they knew it's all they knew how to do was to read the bible this way because it's how their rabbis taught them and pounded into them literally pounded into them but when we have truly experienced the grace the love and the joy of god we extend that grace that love and that joy to others. This is the way that Jesus taught and brought up his disciples and was teaching them how to do this to others. And this is why this became the kingdom of God, which could also be a personification of why Jesus went after the the fishermen and the uneducated, the ones whose consciences weren't seared by the, the upbringing of of pharisaical legalism. That's why he didn't go to the Pharisees on the outset. You would assume that if the Messiah came, that he would go to the religious people. But he went to the unknowing people. The ones without the knowledge. The ones with, that were the gruff and tough fighters and bull riders and you know, construction workers, fishermen, Albertson's deli workers. He went to 
as our culture would call them, the blue-collar workers, right? Because they were fresh-minded to follow him without these preconceived notions of religion. He said, let me show you the way. Let me show you goodness. Let me show you the joy of following God. Enjoy God and inspire others to enjoy God. Especially those who have only experienced hurt and a religious spirit in the church. Whether the victims or even the ones who are the perpetuators of that religious spirit, of the condemnation. How do you... I've I've been admitting this a lot more and more, that sometimes, for, for me, the hardest people for me to love and extend grace to are the religious, are the ones that are the super legalistic, that are the ones that shame and have been brought up in religious. I mock them, I make fun of them, I have little grace for them, and I'm working on it. I'm working on it. You know, and so, but how do you do that? Like you, you extending that that invitation for them to enjoy. So when when you were berated, when people tried to shame you or condemn you or try to chastise you and call it holy, you can say, "No, I rebuke that religious spirit in Jesus' name. I rebuke that. I will not receive that word over me. I will not receive your words of death over me." I used to think that was weird. When I would speak something and somebody, I rebuke them. Like, can you do that? <laughs> I'm trying to correct you here, and you're not you're not receiving this. I rebuke them. Like, can you do that? Can she do that, God? Because um, maybe it's just a check in, in my. And then it causes me to check my heart. What are my motives? What are my desires? And maybe some of the, the one of the best things that you can you can do is just sit there and pray for them. Lord, turn their heart to joy. Give them blessing. Don't hold this against them. Forgive them, for he does not know what he's doing. Didn't say it was easy. And trust people to the Lord. Change your DNA. Shift yourself to have right beliefs about, your, about God's heart for people, about God's heart for others, about God's heart for you. Shift your trajectory. Change your mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Change your mind and change your life. And watch as God transforms lives around you, transforms your work relationships, transforms your family. Do you have arguments in your household? No, we're, we're perfect. We have no arguments in our house at all. Wrong. <clears throat> How do we have grace for one another in our homes? Extending grace, showing love, spurring one another on to love and good works. How do you lovingly give someone a kick in the shorts when you see them? <laughs> When you see them going the wrong direction, like encouraging them, inspiring them, bringing them back. Come back to the joy of your salvation. Come back to the joy of freedom. Remember who you are. Remember from where you were saved from. And go. Keep going. Keep going. Run the race set before you. 
whose end goal is Christ himself. Love what Jesus loves. And let that true grace compel you to lift up and not put down. Jesus, we thank you for your presence and we thank you for your word. God, thank you, thank you that, the, that we don't have to follow the ways of the licentious and the legalistic, but Lord, we can follow the ways of liberty in Christ, of grace, of love, that we can walk by your spirit. Lord, fill us. Fill us with that true grace and compel us, Lord, to lift one another up, to inspire them and encourage them and to point them back to that good grace of Jesus Christ. Help, Lord, for us to focus our hearts on that same desire to put our focus on you, not on ourself. That you are the one who justifies. You are the one who glorifies. You are the one who fills all in all, who holds all things together by the word of your power, not us. Lead us, Lord. Guide us. Show us your love. Draw us into your presence daily. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.